Hi, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading, and recently I was asked to be a guest on the T-Rex Talk podcast from T-Rex Arms to talk a little bit about historic firearms, primarily muzzleloaders, in relation to firearms ownership here in the United States, and as it relates to what we're seeing now and what we saw then. What I have here is a little excerpt of that podcast for you to try out and see if it's the kind of thing you want to listen to the whole thing of. I will say it is about an hour and a half long over on the T-Rex Talk podcast, but I really enjoyed the conversation that Isaac Botkin and I were able to have. We really kind of went down a lot of rabbit holes uh, when it comes to muzzleloading and firearms ownership here in the United States and the history of it and the culture as it relates to muzzleloaders. Um, so if you enjoy this little clip that I've got queued up for you here, check out the entire podcast and, uh, and check out the new video as I'm recording here from T-Rex Arms. It's, I believe it's called Why Everybody Should Own an AR-15. I was able to kind of consult and advise on the historic arms aspect of that video and was actually able to travel to Tennessee to the T-Rex Arms facility to see their operation and, and see the filming of this video, which is really neat. They have a great team there. And, uh, and for me personally, the T-Rex the mission and their, and their products are really kind of second to none. I've been a customer for quite a while now and to have an opportunity to go see the operation, kind of see behind the scenes was really neat. So be sure to check out that video from T-Rex Arms and without further ado, here is a clip from the T-Rex Talk podcast. To learn a lot of those skills at a, at a more fundamental level, um, I think that's, that's a really important thing to bring up. So yeah, I definitely know people who, uh, who shoot muzzle loaders because it gets them an early start <laughs> deer season. Um, but, uh, I know, and I know historical reenactors who do it because it's cool, but I also know historical reenactors who enjoy the challenge of pushing themselves and, and learning a more basic skill set And, um, that's something that I have been trying to do for the last year or so. Um, when, before, uh, before smartphones, I used to actually be halfway decent with navigating using a map. Yeah. And that is a skill that I completely lost uh, <laughs> thanks to Steve Jobs and other people at Google. Um, and I've, I have, uh, made it a point to, to try to get that back. So for the last year, I've been doing a lot more research and experimentation with land nav and just doing a lot more with maps and, uh, and less with, um, less with, with electronics. And I, I see a huge amount of value in being able to do, to do both. And I, I see a lot of folks in the, uh, I guess I would say the, the second amendment community, more of the modern tactical community who, um, who recognize weaknesses with a lot of modern, uh, technology or, or infrastructure. And they would love to get into, um, a little bit more, capability, more self-reliance, mm -hmm. be less fragile. And a lot of them step down a couple of notches from whatever the current, uh, whatever the current technology is. But, um, I actually really like the idea of stepping back very far and learning the fundamentals and then working your way, um, back up. So really simple stuff. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great thing for, for people to play with and experiment with. I mean, it's, I guess to, to paint it with a broad brush, you know, everything that you see people doing, like I said, with a competition when it comes to, to shooting muzzleloaders and things, everything that you see people doing with modern survival and, and you know, rucking and, and recce, you can do all of that with 200 year old equipment. And there's a large group of us out here that specifically love doing that. So I have, you know, I have a modern 
trekking bag where I can go out and camp with my family or, or go meet up with some folks out in the woods somewhere. Uh, and I have all the modern amenities that I can carry on my back and, and haul into the woods. But then I have a direct replication of that for the 18th century that is all dirt simple equipment. I mean, it's all canvas, it's leather, it's linen, it's wool, and that's it. You know, and being able to go out there and and just camp out for a night and feed yourself is one thing with, with your modern equipment. And I, I encourage anybody out there to do it. But when you're going out there and you have your, your flintlock, you have your knapsack on your back, you've got your, your wool hat on and your frock coat, and you're going out there sitting under the stars laying on top of a, of a wool blanket. It just brings a whole other perspective to it. And being able to do it with you know nothing in comparison to what we have today uh, is just an incredible feeling, I think, just for folks interested in becoming less dependent on modern technology. I'm not saying throw it away by any means. Absolutely use it and, and know how to use it. But um, getting out there and starting a fire with flint and steel, you cannot, uh, you can't beat that. You can, if you have a, a good steel and, uh, and you live near a creek of some kind, odds are you can find a piece of flint and start a fire and make some clean water and feed yourself. And uh, I, I bring this a lot back to, you know, connecting with history. And I don't mean that in kind of a nerd historian sense, I guess, not that there's anything wrong with that. But uh, for me, it's, it's really culturally important. We, we talk a lot in contemporary times about American culture and people think the 1950s, you know, cars, white picket fence, barbecue. But I, for me, really the American culture goes back that step further. And it's that self-reliant attitude uh, of being able to know that I can start a fire as simple as that is. I would bet you a million dollars that a seven-year-old from 1780 can start a fire shoot a squirrel, shoot a rabbit, clean it, cook it, and be in bed before you've got your fire started, you know, today. And I don't really care what tools you're using. You can have the most modern tools. And I'd bet you that seven-year-old from 1780 can just about beat you because of the proficiency that they had to have with those tools to make it work and to get you to where you are today. It's just really... It's kind of fascinating to me when you read, there are multiple accounts of children whose parents... Um, died on the Oregon Trail and were separated from wagon trains. And young children were able to survive and keep the keep their wagon moving and keep the oxen moving and take care of one another and make it back to a wagon train or make it to a town and survive. And yeah, those were brutal times. I certainly don't have a desire to go back to that, no, <laughs> that yeah. level. But I do see a lot of value in understanding those skills. And so one of the things that we've been doing with our kids, uh, we're a little, a little older. I think we're a little bit ahead of you. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but we, we, have, we have been reading uh, pioneer stories to them, and I really do see some value. Rather than teaching my kids how to navigate with a phone and then take a step back and how to navigate with a GPS and then take a step back and how to navigate with a map, start at the fundamentals and mm-hmm. then work, work up from there. That's a really great thing about everything that we're talking about, both the equipment and the firearms in general. I grew up really only knowing that muzzleloaders were that muzzleloaders were the only guns for many years. Uh, it wasn't until I was six or seven, I think, um, and and shooting a twenty-two for the first time that I realized that I could shoot and then not need to reload. 
you know, which is really simple <laughs> as a kid. But, uh, you know, as I go back and think about that and as I talk to more people in muzzleloading, it's a really great way to learn because it is slow. Because, you know, as a child, you have to kind of understand that process. And it's a much more intimate way to learn how to shoot. And then, you know, kind of as you as you grow up and as you become an adult and you become more familiar with other firearms, if you can shoot well with a flintlock, I tell people, you can shoot anything because that mm -hmm. is that is hard mode. And if you can kind of go through that simplistic process, you know, in comparison to a lot of things today and whether that's with shooting or, or fire starting or, or uh, you know, st you know, stitching up a, a hole in your clothes or something and getting that going or, or plant identification, anything like that, starting with kind of, you know, the way it used to be and working your way up. You're not only learning simple and then and becoming more advanced, but you're learning the way that that humans have and that people have. And uh, I think or I hope at least that people can kind of look back and associate that and understand their ancestors a little bit. I don't yeah. mean to harp on that yeah, too much, but it's something I, it yeah. gets me excited. I thought of a similar parallel, which, again, this episode is just going to be me sounding like I'm a Luddite. But in the olden days of, of teaching videography and photography, back when <laughs> film and videotape was expensive, yep. one of the first things you learned was to be very deliberate and very careful before you wasted the very expensive 24 exposures that you had in your camera. And now a digital camera is just like, I'll take 6,000 photos and one of them will by accident be good. And ta-da, I'm a photographer now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there, I think there are a lot of parallels, I'm sure, for a lot of different things where the new tools come along. They offer tremendous capability over the old tools, but the old tools were unforgiving and forced you to be deliberate and to be careful and to be um, involved in the process. That's one of the things that that is really interesting to me about muzzle loading. And I uh, we we've talked about this off, you know, prior to this. I am I am now. Um, I haven't even sh I've never shot a muzzle loader, but just handling the muzzle loaders and talking to you, I have decided that we really should have one. I'm not sure exactly the timetable. I'm very excited about getting, and I want to build a muzzle loader. And, and I want to go all the way to Flintlock just because might as well go all the way. And yeah. uh, I'm very excited about shooting that and learning more about it. And then the other thing that, that um, I learned as I was reading about muzzleloading shooting competitions, I already knew this, but I kind of forgot. Muzzleloaders are extremely powerful. Oh, yeah. And they, they have tremendous ballistic capability. And uh, I knew that because obviously they were used for significantly effective bloody combat and even super long-range shooting. There is a, a local legend here in Middle Tennessee named Jack Hinson, uh, who was a, a Confederate sniper, kind of a freelance uh, Confederate sniper. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he pulled off some extremely long shots and uh, and focused uh, his attention on, on uh, Union officers. But um, yeah, it should come as no surprise to people who are listening and have their brains engaged, like I didn't, that... Uh, People who are doing long-range muzzle-loading competitions are shooting thousand yards and further. They're they're doing stuff that long-range guys are doing with modern cartridges. And uh, I guess those those bullets are maybe not as aerodynamic. They don't have the quite the same ballistic coefficient that some of our really nice you know six five Creedmoor does, for right, example. Yeah. But hey, you know a four hundred grain bullet is gonna it's gonna have some momentum. It's gonna go. That is going to hurt. I don't care where you're standing. Black powder is not the fastest powder out there, but if you have a thirty inch barrel and you're shooting a four hundred grain bullet, 
you can send that thing about as far as you can see all day. <laughs> yeah. And it, it that kind of goes into something else that we've kind of talked about here a little bit, but you know, the the efficiency and the simplicity of it. I mean, these things, especially going back to the flintlock, if you lost your flint, you could find and and hopefully nap together and cob together a rough flint to get you going again. You know, if that came out of the jaws, you could get that going again. You know, black powder is manufacturable with natural materials that you can find. I mean, we did have industries set up, you know, even going back to the the early colonies to handle all this stuff and to bring it in and to support and make it. But it is the kind of stuff that is something that you can actually work on. I mean, you can build a muzzleloader. I would just this past weekend met half a dozen people that uh, at an event that that brought their own muzzleloaders that they had made in their home shops and, and wanted me to see them because they were just proud of them and they, and they should be proud because that's that tradition there and that's the kind of thing that even with a uh, a lack of you know you don't have to be an engineer you don't have to be a mechanical engineer to figure a lot of this stuff out you know if you study this and have a little bit of equipment you can make something work here which is you know it goes back to that you know, talking about the, the polymer 80 frames and things, the 80% lowers and that kind of stuff. Uh, it, it's the kind of thing that you were expected to be able to maintain and keep going because of that simplicity. And that carries through to today. You have something that's marginally effective compared to what we have today, but is a lot more sustainable on the individual level. I'd like to thank Isaac again for the opportunity to, to be on their podcast and to come down and see the shop and the business that they're running down there in Tennessee. I'm a huge fan of American-made products and American companies, uh, especially when they have such a strong mission that drives them like T-Rex Arms does. So thank you again. I'll have a link in the show notes if you enjoyed this clip that you can go and directly check out the podcast on your favorite podcast platform, as well as a link to the video, uh, why everybody should own an AR-15 in the show notes down below or in the description or in the blog post. However you're listening to this, we'll have a link for you to check out both of those productions. Once again, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to Awaken180WeightLoss.com.